That's Revelation 4. Now let's pivot or let's continue and talk about Revelation 5. The dominant word in chapter 4 is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. That's the concept that is at the center and the heart of chapter 4. In chapter 5, the concept that's at the center of the whole vision is the concept of God or God and the Lamb being worthy, worthiness. So look at Revelation 5, and let's read 1 to 5. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals." So let's just walk through this. John saw the one on the throne holding a scroll. The Greek word here is biblion. It's the word that we get the word Bible from. And it literally describes what you imagine with a scroll. A rolled up piece of parchment, something in the middle, and this long piece of paper is wrapped around it. John says it has seven seals. What's on the scroll? Here's your options. Number one, maybe it's the Bible itself. Maybe that's what the image is, just the Scriptures. Option number two, some people say it's the book of life. Book of life shows up multiple places in the Bible. I gave you a few references here in the book of Revelation. Most likely, most Bible scholars say this scroll is the story of human history as it has been written and determined by the one who sits on the throne. So you got a few people that say, oh, it's the Scriptures. He's holding the Scriptures. you got a few people say, oh, it's the book of life. It's this list of names. But most people say, no, this scroll represents human history. Human history as it's been written and determined and planned and predestined by the one who sits on the throne. So Piercy says this, the scroll represents the decrees of God concerning the unfolding of God's plans for the judgment and salvation that were established before the foundations of the world, set in motion by Christ's death and resurrection. The future of this world is not determined by fate or chance, like the Romans would have said. History is the unfolding of God's predetermined plan for all things. Now, I have two questions for you to wrestle with and think about quickly. Question number one, God's on the throne. He has a scroll. Why doesn't he just open it? Why is there all of this drama about who can open the scroll? Why doesn't God just open the scroll? Question number one. Question number two, when John eventually comes around and says that the lamb, we haven't got to the image of the lamb yet, he says the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He's talking about Jesus. When he tells us that Jesus takes the scroll and opens it, why do we need this interlude where he's crying? 
because no one can open it. Why not just say, Jesus opened the scroll? Number one, why doesn't the one seated on the throne open the scroll? Number two, why not just cut to the chase and tell us that Jesus could open the scroll? I think the answer to question number one is what we read in Revelation 4.8. The one who sits on the throne is holy, holy, holy. And if he is going to unroll this scroll, sinful people like you and me are going to be completely obliterated, completely annihilated. What we need in this unfolding of the scroll is a mediator. We need someone to come between, to stand between us as sinful people and the holy, holy, holy one who sits on the throne. Which brings us to the second question, why didn't John just tell us that Jesus was worthy to take the scroll? Why all this stuff about who's worthy, no one's worthy, John's crying, he's weeping, the angel shows up. The emphasis in that part of the story is to show us that only Jesus is worthy. It's not just that Jesus is worthy, it's that he's the only one worthy. There's no one else worthy to stand between sinful humanity and holy God and to open this scroll in a way that God's people are not completely overwhelmed and destroyed by His holiness. So the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, takes the scroll. When Jesus is identified with these images, John is highlighting Jesus' role as the king of kings. Now he's going to use that title at the end of Revelation, king of kings. But if you go back and look at where does the line of the tribe of Judah comes from, it comes from Genesis 49. It's a prophecy spoken by a father to his sons, and it's a prophecy about kingship. And the same is true of Isaiah 11. It's a prophecy about kingship. So John is giving us a, a preview of the end. This one who takes the throne or takes the scroll is actually the king. Schreiner says the key to history, as Revelation 5 shows, is the death and resurrection of Jesus. So notice this, verse 5, chapter 5, there's a lion. Then when you move to verse 6, there's no lion, there's a lamb. So look with me at Revelation 5, verse 6, 7, 8. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders... I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. All right, we're going to move through some of this quickly to make up a little bit of time. The idea of a lamb who died begins in the Old Testament, and it runs all the way through the Old Testament. Genesis 22 is the story of Abraham and Isaac, and there's a lamb that dies instead of Isaac. Uh, Exodus 12, the Passover, Isaiah 52 and 53, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, the suffering servant. It's the most clear prophecy of Jesus and his sacrificial death in the, in the whole Bible. John chapter 1, verse 29, I know that's in the New Testament, but John the Baptist is an old covenant figure, basically, and John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. 
What's he talking about? He's talking about Genesis 22. He's talking about Genesis chapter 3, where God kills an animal to clothe Adam and Eve. He's talking about the Passover. He's talking about the Day of Atonement. He's talking about Isaiah 52 and 53. All of that imagery is loaded in to this title, the Lamb. Now, Mounts is helpful when he says, any attempt to visualize a seven-horned, seven-eyed lamb in a literal fashion should remind us of the symbolic nature of John's visions. I don't know if any of you are sheep farmers on the side, but if you had a lamb that looked like this, you would be freaked out and you'd kill it immediately. And you'd say, let's forget that ever happened. Let's just move on. So it's not, when you read this, he's not describing something literal. We don't take things in the book of Revelation always woodenly literal, but we do take them seriously, which means the Lamb of Revelation 5 is perfect in knowledge and power. So when it talks about seven eyes, he's talking about seeing and knowing and knowledge. When he talks about horns, seven horns, that's a clear Old Testament image of power from beginning to end in the Bible. So he's perfect in knowledge and power. The Lamb's eyes are identified with the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold Spirit. We saw this in the letters, chapter 2 and 3. Jesus says this to the churches. Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And I'll let you read the quote from George Ladd, one of my favorite theologians, about how the Trinity uh, begins to be built into the book of Revelation here. Notice this, the Lamb approaches the throne and He takes the scroll. The Lamb walks right up to the throne of the universe and He takes the scroll. I think as people who don't live under a king, we don't fully appreciate how audacious this is. You remember the story of Esther going before the king, her husband, and everyone is terrified because you don't just march up to the king, and if you march up to the king on a bad day and he's sitting on the throne and he gives you the thumbs down or the frown or whatever, you're dead. The lamb just marches right up to the throne, and he just takes the scroll. And throughout the book of Revelation, the lamb is repeatedly connected to him who sits on the throne. It almost becomes a chorus or a refrain in the book. To the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb. It's almost like you can't talk about one without talking about the other. The one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. They always go together throughout the book of Revelation. All right, let's make a few notes about the congregation in chapter 5. Notice that verse 8 talks about four living creatures and 24 elders. Notice that verse 11 talks about the living creatures and the elders and many angels, myriads and myriads. Notice that verse 13 talks about every creature in heaven and on earth. And under the earth, and notice that verse 14 again circles back to the four living creatures. So I'll make these points quickly. The living creatures and the elders each have harps and bowls representing worship and prayer from the saints. That's part of this congregation. Harps and bowls that represent worship and prayer from the saints. Saints literally means holy ones. The most common word to describe Christians in the book of Revelation is saints. 
which is not all that surprising because the most important thing that you need to know about God is that He's holy, and His people are holy. They're saints. Lad makes this point pretty clearly. The congregation of Revelation 5 expands, and it includes myriads and myriads of angels. That's verse 11. Literally, the Greek says 10,000 times 10,000. Keener explains that 10,000 was the largest number for which the Greek language uh, afforded a ready term. So the plural in the Greek of 10,000 times 10,000 is a handy way of saying they were innumerable. Millions, billions, trillions, infinity, on and on they go. However you want to describe it in English is an uncountable multitude of angelic creatures. Lastly, the congregation of Revelation 5 includes every creature in the universe. We saw that in verse 13. All right, let's talk about the songs. Verse 9 and 10. Verse 9 says, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Notice the song in verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then notice the song in verse 13. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. All right, song three and four. They focus on the worthiness of Jesus because of his sacrificial death. He is worthy because he died a sacrificial death. He was slain and he ransomed people and he made them into a kingdom. Let me just make a couple of notes here. The word ransomed here is the word agorazo. It's literally the word that would be used if you went to the slave market and bought a slave. You paid a redemption price, and that person, in the instance of a slave, became your property. You bought it. That's what the Bible describes Jesus doing in his sacrificial death. With his blood, he ransomed people. He purchased people so that they now belong to him. This idea of a kingdom of priests, that's what Israel was called to be in the Old Testament. And that's how Peter describes the church in the New Testament. A kingdom of priests, a group of people who mediate between the world that's lost and the God who loves that world that's lost. That's what Israel was intended to be. That's what the church is intended to be. And then I just, there's these seven attributes. Power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. Right there in chapter 12. All of those are found in 1 Chronicles 29.11 attributed to Yahweh. And here, they're attributed to the Lamb. Again, John's piecing together a Trinitarian theology so that you see who Jesus is. It's not just Him who sits on the throne, but it's the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And the way the Old Testament describes God, the Father, the New Testament is describing God, the Son. Song number five identifies the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb as the object of heaven's worship. Both of them worship together. The one on the throne and the Lamb receiving worship. 
the very point we saw the Father in chapter 4, we see the Son in chapter 5. Christ is the focus of all attention, the one with whom every other is enthralled. The peons of praise rise to Him as they do to God Himself, for there is no distinction. The church, the angels, the whole of creation sing His praise and offer Him worship. Mount says something very similar. All right, so that's chapter 4 and 5. Let's talk about some points of application. Let's think about what we do with these two chapters. Number one, God stands at the center of all reality. Revelation as apocalypse is telling you what is real. For the people who were reading this book initially, it seemed like Caesar was very much really in charge. And it seemed like the most important thing was the harvest, or maybe their family and kids going to school, or maybe um, the persecution that they were suffering, or maybe the problems that they were facing at church. There's things in life that seem to be the most pressing, the center, just the most weighty things in our life. And Revelation is saying, look, all of those things are real. None of those things are unimportant. But Revelation pulls back the curtain to say, this is the most real thing. And the most real thing is God himself. You can't see him unless you have the eyes of faith. And unless God reveals himself to his people in a special way, and that's what he's done in the book of Revelation. God is at the center of the universe. The goal of God in everything is to glorify himself, to enjoy that glory, and to have his creation enjoy glorifying him forever. In worship, God gathers his people to himself as the center. When we gather together as a church family on a Sunday morning, our primary objective is not to walk away feeling better about ourselves or to sing about how brave we are or courageous we are or faithful we are or noble we are, but it's to acknowledge the truth about God. We meet in this room. You can see Jake. You can see me. You can see the people sitting next to you. You can't see God. But we believe the Bible and we believe the book of Revelation. And even though you can't see it, we believe that God is the most real thing in the universe. Number two, the triune God is worthy of worship because He alone is holy. He alone is holy. I love this quote from Derek Thomas. He just makes the point that the focus of heavenly worship is the holiness of God. He's holy, holy, holy. It implies that He's different. He's separated. There's an interesting Bible Jeopardy fact for you, in the Bible where God's name is mentioned, it is qualified by the adjective holy more often than by all the other qualifiers put together. It's the only one raised to the third degree, and if you take all the other things the Bible has to say about God and stack them up and compare them to a list of how many times the Bible says God is holy, it says He's holy more. It's the central truth about who He is. In fact, if you look at the very first song of worship in the Bible, it's Exodus 15, when Moses leads the people out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea and they sing a song, and they sing about God's holiness. So the, one of the very first things God's people worship God for. Here at the end of the Bible, 
the last songs of worship in the Bible, many of them, Revelation 4, 15, 16, they talk about God's holiness. That probably ought to be a theme in our worship, the holiness of God. Next, the triune God is worthy of worship because He's the Creator and the Redeemer. Those are God's two great works. God reveals Himself in the Scriptures. He does lots of different things, but those are the big ones. He's the Creator. He's the Redeemer. He made it all, and He saves His people. Next, the people of God should feel drawn to worship God. Quickly, I want to read these quotes, and then I just want to say a few things very directly. Piercy says this, If there's no tug in our hearts, no longing to be part of this grand celebration around the throne, when Jesus finally receives all the enthusiastic, thundering praise He deserves, maybe we need to ask ourselves some sober questions. Perhaps we need to ask, what is it in my life that is getting the passion that belongs to Jesus? Eugene Peterson, Christians worship with the conviction that they are in the presence of God. Worship is an act of attention to the living God who rules, speaks, reveals, creates, redeems, orders, blesses. Outsiders observing these acts of worship see nothing like that. They see a few people singing, unpopular songs, sometimes off-key, sometimes from an old book making remarks that may or may not interest the listeners, then eating and drinking small portions of bread and wine that are supposed to give nourishment to their eternal souls in the same way that beef and potatoes sustain their mortal flesh. Who is right? Revelation is showing you what's real. Worship is giving attention to the living God who is real. One more quote from Piercy. To worship is to let the worth and wonder of God sink in so that you respond in a wholehearted reorientation of your life. What used to be valuable becomes worthless. What used to seem insignificant or optional becomes of ultimate significance and utmost importance. Seeing what God is worth and giving Him the glory and honor He is worthy of is worship. Okay, let me just speak directly before I give you these last two points. When I was in college, I had a college pastor who had a great influence on my life. And I remember one trip, he took us to a missions conference, and part of the missions conference was a time of worship. And I stood there as a young, stubborn, arrogant college kid and refused to sing. And I just stood there. I wasn't disruptive, I wasn't defiant, I wasn't making fun of the band or anything that was happening, I just wasn't going to sing. And I up to that point in my life, I didn't do a lot of that at church. Went to church every Sunday. My mom worked at the church, but I just stood there. And he talked to me after one of the sessions, and he said, why don't you sing? And I got mad. Why don't you mind your own business? I don't want to sing. I'm listening, I'm thinking, I can worship without singing. What kind of hypocrite are you that you think I have to sing out loud? You don't know my heart. I mean, I'd said all the sanctimonious, stupid things a young college kid would say. In the Bible, God's people sing. 
they sing. In this church, we need men to sing. I do not care if you sing loud or soft, on key or off key, but in the Bible, God's people sing. And when you get a glimpse of who God is, the one who sits on the throne and who the Lamb is, I'm just telling you, you ought to sing. And you can be like me, college kid, and you can say, eh, you crossed the line. I'm just here for a study on Revelation. I just want to decode stuff. Didn't come for you to lecture me about singing. I'm just telling you, you ought to sing. I'm telling you, your kids and your grandkids need to see you singing and hear you singing. And I'm telling you that that's the proper reaction to seeing God in His glory, singing. And a lot of people say, well, I just, I don't do that. And you know what I say? I've gone to a lot of rock and roll concerts and country music concerts and seen a lot of rough, crusty dudes singing really loud. And I'm pretty sure some of those same guys go to church on Sunday morning and do this. I don't sing. Well, you'll sing with Garth Brooks. Or you'll sing with Metallica. Or you'll sing with whoever it is that you go listen to in concert. Don't tell me you won't sing. Well, I don't get excited about things like that. Really? I've been to t-ball games where you were there at the t-ball game. You got excited. You got loud. You were screaming and clapping and cheering and raising your hands. You were expressive. You can do it. You do it about things that you care about. I, I think Christian people sing. I think when you have a vision of who God is in your heart and your mind, and you see the curtain pulled back, and with the eyes of faith, you understand who the one is on the throne, and what he's done as the creator, and what he's done as the redeemer, and who the lamb is. I don't think anybody like me has to cajole you into it. I can't cajole you into it. All I can hope is that you see a vision of who he is in his glory. And when you come into this room, and we sing these not very popular songs, and we see them sometimes off-key, and the band doesn't hit all the exact right notes, you don't care about any of that because your heart is overflowing in worship. That's what Revelation's describing. There's not anybody in this vision standing with their arms crossed, sulking, critiquing the music. They're just engaged in it. Revelation 4 and 5 has inspired countless worship songs. Holy, 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 Handel's Messiah, all hail the power of Jesus' name, Revelation song, crowning with many crowns, we fall down. It's classical music, it's praise music, it's hymns, it's everything in between. God's people have looked at these chapters for millennia and walked away saying, we should do some of that. We should do what they're doing. We should sing about God's holiness. We should sing about Him being the Creator. We should sing about Him being the Redeemer. So the point is, the people of God should feel drawn to worship God. And here that looks like singing. So something to think about. Two more quickly. Christian worship is directed toward Jesus, the Lamb of God who died for sinners. 
I just want you to notice the focus of worship in Revelation is never the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is there. The Holy Spirit is connected to Jesus. The Holy Spirit speaks when Jesus speaks, but the Holy Spirit never takes center stage in the book of Revelation. That's not to say that we can't pray to the Spirit, and it's not to say that we can't ever sing a song about the Holy Spirit. It's just to say that the dominant focus of worship is not the Spirit, but it's the Lamb. That's the word that's repeated 28 times in the book of Revelation. The Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb. The one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And the Spirit's job, as Jesus described it in the Gospel of John, was to point people towards Him. So worship for Christians is directed primarily towards Jesus. Um, quotes there from Osborne and Ladd, I'll let you read those. Last, Christian worship is intended to fortify the people of God in suffering. Jake talked about suffering on Sunday. I'm going to talk about suffering tomorrow night, Wednesday night. We're going to talk about suffering a little bit again on Sunday as we work through First and Second Peter. These two visions in Revelation 4 and 5, it's really one vision, this is what some people call the centering vision of the book of Revelation. This is the grounding and the foundation. It's the primary concept of God that will fortify and sustain God's people through the suffering that we're about to get into in the book of Revelation as we move to chapter 6, 7, 8, and beyond. Some of the scary things that people associate with Revelation are what we're dipping into next. But before you get to that, You've got to be grounded in this vision of worship in Revelation 4 and 5. So we'll end with this quote from Schreiner. Christians who are suffering, indeed all Christians, are prone to forget about God. The circumstances of life can overwhelm us so that we fix our attention entirely on ourselves. Revelation 4 lifts our eyes to the most important being in the universe and summons us to behold our God. And this God is sitting on His throne. Despite the evil in the world, God reigns and rules. And we see God. When we see God, we realize He is indescribably majestic, beautiful, lovely, and awesome. And we confess that the God we worship is infinitely holy. None of us is worthy to stand in His presence, and hence, there is a great gulf between us and God breached only by Jesus Christ. When you think about what Romans 8 says, Romans 8 says creation is groaning. It's groaning, waiting for something greater to come. Revelation 4 and 5 gives you a glimpse of what that something greater is. There's no groaning in Revelation 4 and 5. There's worship. There's worship. That worship is intended to fortify us in the suffering that we face in this life as the people of God. You know, that gives an added weight to what happens in this room. We just talked to, I talked to you about singing. What happens in this room is intended not to puff you up to feel great about yourself, but it's intended to give you a true vision of who God is and what He's done for His people. 
It's intended to fortify you and strengthen you so that when you go out into the world and people are sick and families are broken and terrible things happen and there's suffering that marks our lives, you've got steel in your spine. Not because you're so great, but because you are captured and you're captivated by this vision of who God is, the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. So that's Revelation 4 and 5. 